The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. So you know there's uh, 66 books in, in the Bible and uh, one of them, just one of them, has a blessing attached to the reading of it. Anybody know what that book is? Book of Revelation. You're on, you're on top of this. I like that a lot. So Revelation 1.3 says this, a blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now I am totally up for the blessing that comes from reading aloud the words of this prophecy. I'm up for that blessing. How many people are up for the blessing of listening to that, hearing the words of this prophecy? All right. And so, um, so let's get our Bibles open to Revelation 19. And I'm going to look at verses 11 through 16. Uh, which really speaks to the, uh, I mean, this passage is it's kind of breathtaking and awe-inspiring, and we know that it's a history culminating a moment uh, of prophecy, and you should really be asking yourself the question, I am going to be asking myself this question through this, um, um, am I truly anticipating the imminent return of Jesus Christ? But that's, that's what's in front of us as we read this passage. And I'm going to say this too before I read it. Either this passage excites you or it terrifies you. It's one or the other. So let me read it for us. I will pray and we'll begin working through these verses. This is Revelation 19, 11 to 16. The apostle John writes this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, as we approach this time now in a passage that uh, truly is um, exciting or terrifying, depending on our perspective, I I pray that you would give us understanding into this text, Uh, God, that uh, it would be very clear to us how it applies to us, how our lives need to change, and God, we would walk away from this time in your word um, more completely anticipating the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, are you anticipating the imminent return of Jesus? If you are, then you're going to be um, watching for his coming. Uh, Watch for his coming. 
and the priorities of your life really should be reflecting this watching that's happening in your life. We looked at the ascension of Jesus last week, and you recall that in uh, that uh, account, the uh, followers of Christ were there with him, and he's now ascending from earth to heaven, and they're standing there looking up, and as they were looking up and gazing at this incredible sight that they had seen, these angels show up to speak to them, and in Acts 1.11, uh, they say, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And now we notice here in Revelation 19 that this John's writing this, John the Apostle, and he was there when the ascension happened. I mean, he heard what the angels said to them. He was one of the ones looking up and watching Jesus ascend into the clouds. And now he's getting a vision of what it's going to be like when that word that the angels spoke is actually going to be fulfilled. He's looking ahead. We're still looking ahead, but he's getting this vision of it that he records for us. In verse 11, he starts and he says this, then I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. Now the white horse that he's riding and the white horses that all the armies of heaven are riding, really symbolic of, of the victory that's ours, of the conquest that's coming, a complete and utter conquest over evil and death. And he saw in advance exactly what those angels had told him. What John is seeing is this final act of earth history. And by Revelation 19, you know because, I mean, if you just look at your Bible there, you can't really see this in your electronic Bibles, but if you look at your Bible, there's not much left. I mean, take out the maps and the concordance and there's really only a couple of pages. This is at the very end. Even with regard to the book of Revelation, it's chapter 19, there's only a couple of things left to say. And so, so much has happened before this, and that's why John says, then I saw. What happened before the then? All the events of history coming up to this very moment. And, and I know we come from a lot of different backgrounds church-wise and some of us none at all. And some of us have thought a lot about what happens in the end times with the coming of Jesus. And some of us haven't thought very much about that. And I haven't taught very much on it over the last 15 years. So I thought that it might be helpful to us in light of that just to do like a brief primer on everything that happens before the then. Okay, so I'm gonna give this to you right now. We're gonna call this a primer on the return of Jesus, just some things that we believe about this. Uh, first of all, this, and we said it's last week, we're saying it again, uh, it's gonna be unexpected. It's, it's an imminent return. It's gonna happen at any time, but it's unexpected. Even those who profess faith in Jesus Christ are gonna be surprised at it when it comes. We're gonna be going about our business and raising our families and, 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 and pursuing our leisure pursuits and we're gonna be at work and it's gonna be a day that we weren't really expecting. In fact, uh, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a, like a thief and no one ever expects a thief. I mean, just watch the news tonight. If there's a robbery in anybody's neighborhood, uh, just they're gonna interview the neighbors and the neighbors are gonna say, uh, we never expected that. That just doesn't happen in our neighborhood. We never thought it could happen to us. It happens on the news every night. No one ever expects it when the thief comes. And when Jesus comes, it's gonna catch us off guard. It's, listen, it's unexpected. Uh, secondly, we would say this, on um, the return of Jesus, it's gonna be visible and bodily. 
not just a spiritual thing, but really a, a, a colliding of spiritual and physical. Revelation 1, 7, uh, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, everyone will see him. Not just a spiritual coming, but a bodily one, a visible one. Believers and unbelievers alike will all see Jesus coming in power. They're gonna see him in his glorified and resurrected body when he comes. So it's unexpected, it's visible and bodily. Third, it's gonna be preceded by many signs. Let's talk about some of these. I, I'm gonna give them to you without detail. Maybe another series in the future is here. First this, one of the signs is that the gospel is gonna be preached to all nations before he comes. Mark 13, 10 makes that clear. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. And we're getting there. And in this generation with the... Um, the speed of communications and the ease of travel around the world. We're getting to the place where we can see even in this generation where it's gonna become possible for the scripture to be in every language and for uh, missionaries and preachers to go to every people group for the gospel to literally uh, reach every single person on the planet. That day is coming rapidly. And it's possible that in this generation we could see the completion of uh, Mark uh, 13. Attend the gospel preached to all nations. And then this, another sign would be the great tribulation, Mark 13, seven and eight. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be uh, earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are, notice what it says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so in, in my lifetime, uh, just a little bit better than half a century, I've uh, seen in the news lots of earthquakes and lots of too many wars really to count, uh, famines uh, around the world at different times uh, during those last uh, 50 years. I mean, we've seen so many of these, but remember when we see all of these, this is just the beginning of birth pains. It's not yet, but those are things that are leading us up to the coming of Christ. Here's another sign of false prophets. Uh, Mark uh, 13, 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible, and it's not, of uh, the elect. And we might agree together that in some ways this is already true. And there are so many false prophets and so much bad teaching and so much distortion of the gospel. And that started almost immediately after the resurrection and has continued on unabated for 2,000 years. That's just one sign, false prophets. We're gonna see lots of those. And then uh, heavenly signs, uh, Mark uh, 13, 24 to 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Uh, have we seen that sign yet? No, um, no, I looked up in the sky last night. The moon was there and shining. Uh, so no, we haven't seen that one yet, but we're waiting for it. Um, here's another one, Antichrist. Second uh, Thessalonians uh, 2, 3 to 4, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, it's another name for the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. 
Now, this is one of the favorite pastimes of those who believe the Bible, that um, they like to try to guess who the Antichrist is, a little game we play. I wonder who the Antichrist is. And um, you know some notable uh, candidates from the past, uh, Napoleon, um, Hitler, for obvious reasons, um, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, was thought to be the Antichrist. Uh, those of you who remember politics from another generation, Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State in the, in the, in the U.S. for quite some time, was often considered to be the Antichrist. Uh, Oprah, for obvious reasons. <laughs> Listen, you laugh, but I'm not even kidding about that. Just go online and type in Oprah Antichrist. Lots of web pages uh, <laughs> devoted to that. Um, if you're an evangelical, you know that pretty much every pope has been declared to be the Antichrist. Um, and, uh, and, every, and, and literally, this is true, every president since FDR has been thought to be the Antichrist. And uh, we're still waiting to find out who that is. And I don't think really any of them are. And then uh, this final sign, uh, Israel's salvation and uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a phenomenal passage uh, concerning the reintegration of Israel into the church uh, as the people of God. In Romans eleven twenty five to 27, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hardening has come be, uh, upon Israel. And by that, Paul means uh, that their Messiah was right there in their midst. He was, he was right there walking in their capital city and, and walking throughout their land and teaching their people and teaching in their synagogues, their own Messiah was right there and, and they didn't see it. They missed it. And um, a partial hardening has come upon the Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. This is now the era that we're in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And there will be a regathering I don't know how that's all going to take place, and I, I don't know the timing of it, but there will be a regathering and a reintegration of Israel into God's plans and purposes. He hasn't forgotten about his covenant people. And, um, and these are all signs of, um, of what's to come, this part of this primer on on what we believe about the return of Jesus Christ. And several things I didn't mention would be uh, things like, where's the, what about the millennium? Uh, what about the tribulation? What about the rapture? And these are all different things that fit into this end time scheme. What God is gonna do and what his plans are. And one thing is certain, I may even have mentioned something right now that you're just sitting there and go like, in my understanding, um, uh, that isn't part of it. And I, I understand that's your understanding and there's so much that can be said about all of this. And there are many disagreements that exist between uh, not those who don't believe and those who do, but between people who genuinely believe, people who love the word of God and cherish it as their authority, who are lovers of Jesus Christ and followers of his, have significant disagreements over how this is all gonna play out out in eternity. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with disagreeing with you on that thing. We would consider that a significantly uh, secondary matter uh, of the church. Um, but there are many, despite the disagreements, there are many things we do agree on. I want to give you uh, five of these, uh, five points of agreement on the end times. We all agree on these. Five points of agreement. The first one is this, authority. That the Bible alone, the Bible alone, not any particular preacher, of it, not any particular philosophy of it, not our guest work, not any chart that you saw, uh, but listen, the word of God alone is our authority on all of this and how it's going to all unfold and Jesus himself is king and sovereign over all of it. 
Whatever you believe about the end times, you can believe that. Uh, Secondly, that uh, Jesus is returning. However everything else plays out, uh, we all agree that there comes a day when Jesus will return to this earth. Uh, Third, uh, concerning this world, we all agree that all who are unbelievers, who do not follow Jesus Christ and and, and embrace the gospel, all will be judged and condemned and separated from God for all eternity for not worshiping the Lamb and taking up God's offer of salvation. Whatever you believe about the end times, you believe that unbelievers will be judged for their lack of faith. A fourth, concerning the curse, we, we know this for sure, and we all agree that sin and sorrow and suffering and death will have their end. We all believe that. And um, how many people have had enough of those four things? You've had enough? I've had enough of those four things. And, um, and God's gonna take care of all of those. We all agree. And then finally this uh, fifth, five points of agreement on the end times, God's people, that every believer will be rewarded. And we don't fully get what those rewards are and lots of discussion about that, but we're all gonna receive some kind of reward and we're all gonna spend eternity with our God in the new heavens and the new earth. We all agree on that. And those are awesome things to have in common. These are the things uh, that we should be watching for as we anticipate Jesus' return to this earth. Uh, that's the basis for what we believe and we can embrace concerning all of this. And if all of that is true, if we have that understanding of it, we should also uh, notice this next, trust his plan. We should trust his plan. The book of Revelation and other apocalyptic passages uh, you know, are given to us so that we would read and, and study and understand all of this. And the, the Bible really is replete with so much in the way of apocalyptic literature. It's literally throughout the entire scriptures. You can go all the way back uh, to uh, the, the major prophets and minor prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel all spoke to these things throughout the minor prophets, spoke to what's gonna happen in the last days. Uh, Jesus himself in each of the gospels, we have recorded his words that speak to the end times. Paul uh, spoke about this, uh, particularly in the book of Thessalonians and the apostle John here. I mean, God wants us, he's given us so much. He wants us to study this even though it may be challenging for us because so much of it is in figurative language and images and what does this represent and we're not quite so sure and how does it all fit together and when does this happen? A lot of those kinds of questions uh, for sure but God wants us to study all of this and to understand it at least to some extent. Uh, Maybe you've heard me illustrate it uh, this way before, but when I was a kid, uh, my mom and dad, we would go vacationing. I grew up in Montreal, and we would drive down to the uh, east coast of the U.S. We used to love to go to Old Orchard, Maine. And uh, one of the cool things there is the, uh, there isn't much of an undertow, but there's lots of wave action coming in off the ocean. And we'd go out into the water and tell me you don't enjoy doing this if you've been in the same place, just to stand there and allow those waves to knock you over, to see if you could stand there in the face of the waves hitting you and knocking you back. And listen, if the apocalyptic literature does anything for us, no matter where you're reading it in the scripture, that's what it ought to do for us. Not that we have to fully understand it, but that we should allow that to hit us like a wave of the ocean and knock us back so that when we get up, we feel refreshed and awesome. And I don't totally get that, but it was amazing. Okay, that's what the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic passages should do for you. It should sweep you back 
in the awesome power of our God that he's gonna do something that's far beyond our understanding and it's going to be amazing in every single way. That's what it does for us and uh, we should be comforted and strengthened uh, by what we read in all of this and, um, and we need this, don't we? We need a plan that we can trust. I was sitting here in last night's service and uh, I didn't sit at the front, I, I sat at the back and I was just watching people as they worshiped. And I, was, I started to think about individuals and couples that I was seeing, people that I know and people I've prayed for. You submit your prayer requests and you, and you give us as leaders a glimpse into your lives. And I've, I've sat with enough of you and I've heard your stories enough to know that there's a lot of pain in this room. A lot of different reasons why life is difficult. And I could go through all of those right now, but, but, but you're thinking about the thing that makes life a challenge for you right now. The hardships that you've been through or the ones you're going through now, the scar tissue that you carry. And for some of you, a challenge that's gonna last a lifetime, pain and hurt that's gonna stick with you until the day Jesus makes everything better. That's why we need this. That's why we need a plan that's not based on speculation or something that someone invented or some kind of hope-so scenario, but something that's rooted in the plans and purposes of God, something that we can trust. We can trust his plan. John tells us here in the latter part of verse 11, look what he says, the one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus sitting on the white horse. He's the one who now has this title. Notice the capital letters. He has the titles. He's known by, this is his name. He's faithful and true. His character, oh, that this would be true of us. His character is so ingrained in who he is that his character, the qualities of who he is become his name. This is how we know him. And so we can trust him. We can take what he said to the bank and make the deposit. You can count on him coming through no matter what. When he says he's coming back, guess what? He's coming back because he said so. And no matter what you're facing or what's happened to you in this world, in your life, he's coming back to bring healing and renewal to restore you. You can trust his plan. And really, you don't have a lot of options. In fact, you have none. Because really the only other place you could go to find any kind of hope, if you will, would be to trust the people around you. And we can be such a disappointment to one another, can't we? We can hurt each other so deeply. We can fail one another so completely. Even, even the person who you would trust the most, who, who, you would, who, who you would know loves you the most and is so committed to you, whoever that person is for you, the person who would say to you, I will always be there for you. Listen to me and, and, and hear my heart in this. I hope you, you know what I'm saying here, but even the person who loves you the most and would be there for you the most, 
through no fault of their own, cannot possibly keep the promise to always be there for you. Do you hear what I'm saying? A mother would do anything for a child, including giving her own life. And a mother might say to a son or daughter, I'll always be there for you. And mean it so sincerely. But through no fault of her own, someday she won't be able to be there. And in that sense, we're a disappointment to one another. And we can't possibly put our trust in another. And that's where Jesus comes in because when he says to us, I'll always be there for you. He means it. And he will be. He'll never fail us. He'll never forsake us. And our lives should be a visible demonstration of the trust that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then see further the description of Jesus and acknowledge the qualifications that he has because he's unique among, let me put a small s on it, small s saviors. The world pushes so many saviors on us. Verses 12 and 13, notice his eyes, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna note five things in these two verses and you can write them in your Bible beside this if you want. But notice as we go through this, his eyes are like a flame of fire. I mean, he's holy. He's holy and righteous and pure in every way. In fact, the righteousness of God, the, 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 the fire of God's righteousness, Daniel chapter seven tells us, flows from the very throne of God. Fire, a symbol of his perfection. It's in his eyes and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. He's majestic, he's awesome, he's the king and he's worthy of our reverence toward him. He has a name written, the verse goes on to say that no one knows but himself, he's transcendent, the word means other, he's different than us and that's a good thing, correct? That's a good thing. We need a savior who's not like us because we can't save ourselves. We can't save anyone else. He's transcendent, he's other. He's, notice he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's his own blood. His perfect blood shed for us on the cross. He's worthy. He's worthy. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. He's authoritative. He's in control. He's all powerful. He's sovereign over all of this. You see them there? He's holy, majestic, transcendent, worthy, and authoritative. He's all of these things. And this is what uniquely qualifies him to be our savior. To ride upon the white horse, to judge those who are unbelievers and to establish his rule on this earth and the saviors of this world, they pale in comparison, though we often chase after them. Our politics, our movements of various kinds, our innovations, our ingenuity, our philosophies, 
are we are the world moments. That's all they are is moments. They're fleeting. They can't possibly save us. We don't have the power to change this world, to rescue it, to rescue ourselves from the downward spiral of sin's effects. Only Jesus can do that. He was crucified for us. He was resurrected on the third day to new life to give us the power of that new life. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and he sent us a down payment called the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to await the day when he would return. He is our savior and we trust him and acknowledge his qualifications You know, one of the things about Jesus in this passage, and it's the thing that makes some people uncomfortable, I'll be honest with you, that there are pastors and there are churches where this message would not be welcomed. Uh, The reason for that is the depiction of Jesus in this passage doesn't fit with the sensibilities and the sensitivity they have to those who are unbelievers. That the picture we like of Jesus and the one that's pictured here, not compatible that what we like is Jesus of the manger a baby gentle mild vulnerable we like the Jesus who walked around Galilee and Judea through the streets of Jerusalem who taught the word of God and who who ministered to people in a very gentle way and spoke words of grace over them We even like the idea of the suffering Messiah, the the one who was like a lamb before her shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. See, all of that about Jesus, we like to talk about because those are the Jesus meek and mild pictures. And it seems that when we bring people who are unbelievers here, that we'd like them to see that Jesus. And the challenge with Revelation 19 is that in, in wrapped up in his qualifications is not only the fact that he was a suffering savior, but also that he is a warrior Messiah. That he's coming in conquest. That he's riding the white horse. That the word of God is proceeding from his mouth to strike down the nations. We like the Lamb of God, but this is the line of the tribe of Judah. There's a final battle that needs to be waged. And in this moment of history, in as much as we needed the Lamb of God at one point to accomplish God's purposes, now we need the lion to show up and to wage war against the evil one and against this world. This is what qualifies him this is what we need acknowledge those qualifications and if all of that is true and you're anticipating his return and you buy into all of that then for sure you will follow his leadership by this point in the vision it's clear that those who believe in Jesus Christ are actually with him at his coming That's what we see in verse 14. Notice the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now that's pretty spectacular. That that we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, at this point, 
every indication that as the followers of Christ, we're part of the army of God that returns with him to conquer this world. I don't know how you feel about riding horses, but you're going to get to ride one. I remember this little um, uh, woman, my mom will remember her. Uh, her name was Anne. And when I first uh, became a follower of Christ, she, you know, she weighed about 75 pounds and uh, white hair. And she was old when I knew her uh, then already. And she went to be with the Lord years and years ago. And she just like a little bit of a thing, but she loved the word of God and taught it so passionately and drilled that into me as a new believer. And I just even can't even imagine her riding a white horse, but she will be, she will be. And so will you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and have embraced him. And so you think about that, following his leadership, well, that sounds awesome. I would love to do that. Sign me up for following Jesus if it means that I get to ride a white horse in his army. But here's the thing, he wants you to follow his leadership now. And following his leadership now is decidedly less spectacular. It is it quite as splashy as what we read here in Revelation 19. No white horses with Jesus out front leading the charge. In fact, we don't even get to see Jesus. We, we live by faith, not by sight. That's a bit more of a challenge. When you follow Jesus today, it's gonna to involve these kinds of things. No white horses, no triumphant ride. This is what it involves, a trials, because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And some of your trials are temporary and some of them are permanent. And you wish Jesus would do something a little different with you and he hasn't and he won't. And, or temptation, I still face that. How many people face temptation this week? Okay, the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, you just faced it and failed. A thousand times I go back to the Lord and ask forgiveness for the same thing. That's what following Jesus is about. Trials and temptations and hardship and ridicule. People thinking you're a fool for following Christ and you are, at least in the eyes of this world. And suspicion and suffering. Not quite riding on a white horse. On this side of eternity, not vindicate it. You have to trust him. And Jesus says to us in Matthew's gospel that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now he's saying this before he went to his cross and when he says it to his followers, they understand that he's talking about a method of Roman cru crucifixion, of execution. In other words, he's saying to his followers, you're gonna have to go and die to yourself. You're gonna have to bring yourself to an end to follow me. Not very glamorous. It's a hard way to live, but it's beyond worth it to be included among the riders on that day, don't you think? That's our hope. Follow Jesus. Follow his leadership in your life. Stop pursuing your own plan. Stop listening to all the other competing voices that are seeking to lead you astray. Stop listening to those who would take you far from him. Stop listening to a world that delivers lies. Do this and you'll be satisfied. Pursue this and you'll be fulfilled. 
Stop listening to a world that delivers only empty promises. Here's a promise. If you do this, it'll be better. Empty. It's not going to be better. Embrace the one who's faithful and true. Follow his leadership. Watch for his coming, trust his plan, acknowledge his qualifications, follow his leadership, and finally this, fear his wrath. We're gonna talk a lot about the wrath of God. Indulge me, it's here in the text. Again, some churches might avoid this topic because they believe it'll repel those who aren't yet believers, and I actually believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would draw those who don't believe. Here's what we know about the pending judgment, a verse that kind of came to my attention this week was Psalm 96.10, that God will judge the peoples with equity. I don't think we have to feel that the judgment is gonna be unfair in any way. God's gonna judge the peoples with equity because he judges on the basis of his own character and he's laid that out so clearly for us. And so God will judge us, whatever word you wanna use, equity or fairness or justice, There's a very um, set and objective criteria by which we are being judged. And he's given all a chance to repent. And when the final day actually comes, those who have repented and believed will be riding with him at his coming. But if you have no assurance of that, if you're sitting here today going like, I'm not sure if that's gonna be me. I read the passage and instead of being excited by it, I have a little bit of fear over whether or not I'm actually gonna be there. I mean, if that's you and you have no assurance that you're truly part of his people, then listen carefully to this, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There's at least three different Old Testament prophecies that are in that particular verse and I find that verse to be one of those sit up and listen verses, don't you? I mean, how could you possibly ignore that in the picture that we have of Jesus here? It's startling. And I would say that there are a lot of people that to me it seems anyways are not taking Jesus seriously And that will be to their own undoing. Too many who are treating Jesus casually, even flippantly, treating Jesus like another hobby that they might have, a part of their life, but not the whole thing. It's a dangerous way to live. And if that's you at all, And you can really have no assurance that you're gonna be among the riders on the white horses. This passage is about as in your face as you can really ever get about Jesus. Does it excite you or terrify you? Do you see Jesus Christ as a buddy-buddy relationship? emphasizing so much the friendship side of it that you forget that he's king of kings and lord of lords? 
In fact, that's where John goes next. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you're riding with him, if you get it, if you don't treat him casually and flippantly, if you know him by these names, if he has rule in your life, if he dictates the terms, if you're pursuing him entirely, then you have no fear of the wrath of God. Because the one who rides the white horse out front of us gave his life as a sacrifice to us. The wrath of God is real based on his own holiness. It's the standard by which we're all gonna be judged, the holiness of God. But Jesus Christ stands in your place if you've put your faith in him. Jesus Christ stands in our place and his blood, listen now, it appeased or satisfied the wrath of God so that we can stand before him, so that we will ride with him, so that we will be with him for all eternity. So you see, you can look at this passage and be terrified because you have no assurance, or you can look at this passage and be so assured and so excited and so fired up by what he said here because you have the assurance that Jesus paid the price, that he is your savior that he is king of kings and lord of lords to you. Are you anticipating the soon coming of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, help us now to uh, live in eager anticipation of the soon return of our Savior. And God, where we have been flippant or inattentive or casual about Jesus, about our faith, God, we repent of that. And we turn again our attention to being watchful for his return and living our lives in light of that. And God, I would pray for those who are not yet following Jesus in this room. And God, who at this point we know are in peril, of being judged, of being on the wrong side of that triumphant ride at the coming of Jesus. God, I pray that in this moment they would surrender their lives to you and make themselves ready for that day. God, we're so grateful for Jesus, grateful for the Lamb who was sacrificed who showed us in doing so his love and his mercy and grateful too for the lion who comes in power and glory. He is our king, the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and we pray in his great name. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.